later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Philip for Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus about brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about thirty about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was near, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus was had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to tell my to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father your, and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them these that he had said these things to her. Let's just pray for, uh, for Marco then as he comes to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we just uh, pray for Marco that uh, you, Lord, by your Spirit, would speak through him to our hearts. Father, you'd open our mind, uh, minds that uh, your word would take residence there, Lord. And Father, most of all, that we would see you through these words. Amen. Constant reminders that I'm not the same height as everybody else who stands up here. Well, uh, if you're visiting this afternoon, a very warm welcome from me as well. If I haven't met you, please do hang around afterwards long enough to have some tea and and, uh, a bite to eat and and to say hello. Um, It is my privilege to serve as one of the core team here and uh, and especially to be able to bring God's word to us this afternoon. So uh, why don't you bow your hearts with me for a moment as I pray and then we'll look at the text. You are the holy and true and living God. God who created everything that has been created out of nothing. God who upholds the stars and the galaxies. God who sustains every beat of every one of our hearts. We bow before your holy word. Open our eyes to see what you would have us see and our hearts to respond as we ought. 
so that you would be glorified in and through us as we see your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, friends, how you respond to something you've been told depends, I, I will suggest, on three things. It depends on... Uh, Christopher, could I ask you to just turn that towards me? Thanks. Uh, it depends on who is talking to you. Is this person trustworthy? Are they reliable? Uh, whether or not your response matters. Is this important? Whether you respond this way or that, will it make any difference? And, of course, on what they are telling you. Is it itself true? Well, this is just obvious, isn't it? Who is telling you, does it matter, and is it true? Uh, a couple of quick examples might help. Imagine uh, your math teacher says to you that next Friday she's setting a test and it will count 25% of your term mark and you're going, it's going to cover uh, all the geometry and trigonometry that you've been doing in class the last term. Well, how do you respond? Well, we ask our three questions. Who is talking to you? Is she trustworthy? Well, in this case, yes. Your math teacher is the right person to be telling you that kind of information. She can't really have any uh, incentive to be lying to you. And in fact, if she was lying to you, would probably get into trouble. And you can see it on the class calendar. So you know uh, the person telling you uh, is the right person to be telling you. It matters. Yes, 25% of your term mark matters. And you know it's true because you can see it on the calendar and you know you've been doing geometry and trigonometry, so you can believe her. But if you know all that, what would be the evidence that you've really heard what she's saying? It would be going home and getting out your textbooks and studying geography and trigonometry and preparing for the test. Geometry and trigonometry, apologies. Merely hearing and not doing what needs to be done would mean you haven't heard in the right way. Not so. Another quick example. You receive an email from Mr. James Moriarty. Chief Executive Officer of the Grand High Bank of Panama, advising you you have just inherited three and a half million pounds from your late aunt Valentina. Mr. Moriarty will deposit the money into your account within 24 hours if you will just email him a copy of your passport, proof of address, and click on this link. Question one, who is telling you this? Well, who is Mr. James Moriarty? Does he have anything to gain by lying to you? Does this information and the request he's making of you, send me your passport, proof of address, and click here, does it matter how you respond? Well, yes. If he's telling the truth, you'll be three and a half million pounds richer quite soon. If he's lying, who knows, might what, what, who knows what might happen once he's got your documents and you've clicked whatever it is he wants you to click? Is it true? Do you have an Aunt Valentina? No, you only have two aunts, and their names are Rose and Catherine, and they are alive and well in Bristol. So how should you respond to this email? Will you delete it and forget about it? Not so. Now, what about this passage that was read for us a few minutes ago? How should you respond? Well, who is telling you this? Does it matter? And what are they telling you? Is it true? First question, who is telling you? Whose account is this? And the answer is an eyewitness. An eyewitness to the events who had nothing to gain and everything to lose by telling you. An eyewitness. Just before this passage, 
In chapter 19, verse 35, John wrote, He who saw these things, he who saw these things is the one bearing witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Again, just after this passage, in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, he wrote, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples. The disciples, John among them, were eyewitnesses. And again, in chapter 21, uh, yeah, chapter 21, verse 24, John says, This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And yet again, to stress the point, in a letter he wrote, 1 John, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this is what we proclaim. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. I was there, John is saying. I was there. I saw him with my own eyes. I touched him with my own hands. I heard his voice with my own ears. I saw it all. I saw him. John was an eyewitness who is talking to us here, an eyewitness who had nothing to gain but everything to lose. His earthly security and even his life. Jesus told his disciples they would be persecuted for their witness to him, interrogated by kings and councils, beaten and put to death. Now he's risen from the dead. You can bet every one of Jesus' words and warnings had just elevated in importance in John's memory. If he foretold his own death and resurrection so reliably, then all his warnings about what lay ahead for him, for John that is, and his fellow disciples must be sure. They must be certain too. John's taking those warnings very seriously. He knew what lay in store for him. He was an eyewitness who knew what his testimony would cost him. We have every reason to take his testimony seriously and none to doubt it. Right, we said there are three questions. Who is telling you? We've answered that. An eyewitness who had nothing to gain but everything to lose in telling you. What is he telling you and does it matter? Well, in this passage, what he's telling us is that Jesus rose from the dead. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But first, let's answer the question, does it matter? Does John's eyewitness testimony that Jesus rose from the dead matter for you? Well, remember what John said uh, in chapter 19. I saw these things with my own eyes. I'm telling you about it. How does he end the sentence? So that you also may believe. Again, in chapter 20, he said, all these things he's told us in his account of Jesus' life were for the purpose that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. And again, in the letter I quoted earlier, 1 John We proclaim all these things to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So does it matter? Yes. John's answer is yes, so that you may have life in Christ. Fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Life hangs on this, eternal life. What could matter more? Life and death, eternal life. 
and eternal death. Some here will be familiar with uh, TED Talks. Well, did you know that the ancient Mediterranean world had a version of TED Talks? It was called the Areopagus in Athens. Um, And Paul, the Apostle Paul, was invited as a leading intellectual of his time to give a speech there. It's recorded in Acts chapter 17. And it was all going well until he declared, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Listen carefully to what Paul is saying here. God calls the whole world to repentance because we have all sinned against him. That is, We have not loved him with all our hearts, with all our minds and our souls as we ought to. God calls each and every one of us to repent and to repent now because the day of judgment is coming. Jesus will judge every human being that has ever lived. And the verdict on each one of us, unless we have trusted in him, in Christ as Savior and risen Lord over all, the verdict will be guilty. So does it matter to you whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? It will. On that terrible day of judgment, it will. And God has given assurance of this. He has proved that it is going to happen, Paul says, by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus' resurrection from the dead matters that you may have eternal life. The Apostle John says, Jesus' resurrection from the dead matters because judgment to eternal punishment is coming, declares the Apostle Paul. Does this matter? What could matter more? How you respond depends on three things. First, who is telling you? An eyewitness with nothing to gain and everything to lose in telling you. Second, does it matter? Eternal life or eternal punishment hang on it. Third, what are they telling you? What is John telling you in this passage? That Jesus rose from the dead, and how does he tell you? By presenting you with the evidence. There's no drama in his account. It's not like a modern TV series that needs 15 seasons to get to a conclusion. His uh, his account is very simple. It's very straightforward. It reads, in fact, very much like the account of an eyewitness who simply tells the facts of what he saw. And he tells us two things. Jesus was really dead, and Jesus really rose to life. Roman soldiers were professional executioners and they knew Jesus was dead. They had just killed him. Just before the passage we read, John tells us, uh, this is in chapter 19, um, that the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. You see, 
Death by crucifixion was slow, intentionally. It took sometimes days, and when it needed to be sped up, the soldiers would go around with a big mallet of some sort and break um, break the legs of those hanging on the cross. Then they wouldn't be able to push themselves up, so they wouldn't be able to breathe, and they would die faster. They went to the man on Jesus' left and his right. They broke his legs. They broke their legs, came to Jesus, and saw he was already dead, so there was no need to. These soldiers knew he was dead. This was their job. If one of them had signed the death warrant for somebody who wasn't really dead, then he, that is the executioner himself, could be put to death. They took their job seriously. Jesus was as dead as dead could be. And this wasn't just the opinion of one. There were four of them. Four professional Roman executioners were all satisfied that he was really dead. Now, it is true that some people think Jesus wasn't really dead, that he just passed out under the immensity of his sufferings, uh, perhaps gone into a coma and then revived a few days later. But this is just ridiculous. It's, it's just even skeptical scholars acknowledge that this is just a nonsense way to avoid the truth. Uh, David uh, Friedrich Strauss was a German theologian of the 1800s, was an extremely controversial figure in his day. The Earl of Shaftesbury called one of Strauss's books, you will enjoy this, the most pestilential book ever vomited out of the jaws of hell. How's that for an endorsement? In fact, when Strauss was elected to the chair of theology at the University of Zurich, his appointment prompted such controversy that he was pensioned before he began. Now, uh, what made Strauss so controversial? Well, essentially, he denied that the Gospels are historical accounts of Jesus' life. He said they have no value as history. They're myth. Strauss uh, could not accept any philosophical foundation other than rational materialism. And so miracles were impossible. The The Gospel accounts could not be historically reliable. They were not historical testimonies. They were myths, like the Hobbit. Legends written by second century uh, writers to embody the hopes of the primitive Christian community. Now, here's the key thing. Strauss said that his criticism, listen to this, his criticism did not essentially destroy Christianity. Why? Because all religions are based on ideas, not facts. So what did Strauss say to the theory that Jesus had not really died? but had merely swooned or fainted or passed out. Well, here's here's his response to that theory. It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. Such a a resuscitation could only have weakened the impression which he made upon them in life and death. At the most could only have given it a mournful voice, but could by no possibility have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm, have elevated their reverence into worship. Even the most skeptical scholars agree that this theory is just a nonsense. Imagine Jesus whipped so brutally that his rib bones could be counted as he hung on the cross. His head 
septic from having a crown of thorns beaten into his skull again and again, Matthew tells us. Severely anemic from massive blood loss. Dehydrated, not having had a sip of water in days. Imagine Jesus barely clinging on to life, rolling away with hands mangled from iron stakes that held him to the cross. The massive rock that sealed the tomb. Overpowering, with feet split open, and probably septic from thick iron stakes that held him to the cross. Imagine him overpowering the professional armed guards at the tomb and looking to all who saw him like the Prince of Glory who had just conquered death and the devil. Nonsense. Jesus had really died. The burial procedures John described at the end of chapter 19 were common Jewish practice, wrapping the body in in spices and cloth, because, of course, in the hot climate, a dead body would decompose quite quickly and smell. And that's what the spices and the cloth were for. Joseph and Nicodemus were familiar with these rituals. They knew very well how to tell a dead body from a live one. It was so ingrained into Jewish consciousness, especially those who were leaders of Jewish um, society and religion, uh, to stay away from dead bodies. They knew a dead body. The Roman soldiers knew Jesus was really dead, and those who buried him knew he was really dead. Jesus was really dead. John goes on to tell us in this passage then that Jesus really rose to life. And he does it by presenting us three eyewitness accounts. In chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. The tomb was empty. The corpse was missing. Mary ran to fetch Simon Peter and John, and they came back to the tomb with her. Peter ran straight in. John followed a minute later. And they saw the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Verse 7. An empty tomb, a missing corpse, and the burial robes left behind. Grave robbers were a real thing, but this was no robbery. The only things of value were the burial robes, and they were left behind. Is it reasonable to think that grave robbers beat up the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, rolled away the rock, went in, took the time to slowly and carefully unwrap the corpse, neatly put the burial robes back in their place, and then carry off a beaten, torn, bloody, and decaying mess of a corpse? Look carefully at verse 7. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. One was to wrap his body, one was to wrap his head. They were still in their place, the cloth and the linen, exactly where they had been left. In other words, Jesus' body had simply left them behind. Notice, John makes no attempt to spiritualize or dramatize his account. He simply tells it as he saw it. The rock was rolled away, the body was gone, the robes were exactly where Jesus had been laying. Three people saw it. 
And note verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. John didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead because the Scriptures had foretold it, and he was expecting it and looking for the fulfillment of the prophecy. No. John himself tells us that at this point he still didn't really understand the prophecies. He was not expecting Jesus to rise. No one was. No, he saw the physical evidence and concluded Jesus has risen. It's really a very simple account. Jesus was really dead. The soldiers knew it. Those who buried him knew it. But early morning on the third day, the tomb was empty. The body was gone and the burial robes had been left in place. Jesus really rose to life. Mary stayed in the garden crying, not understanding what was going on, but knowing that the Lord she loved was missing. A few minutes later, Jesus speaks to her, and she thinks he's the gardener. No drama. She didn't see the heavens open, and a figure in blazing sunlight with golden wings and a diamond crown descending to choirs of angels. Jesus, who has just defeated death, risen from the grave, looks like a manual laborer in the garden. Jesus, the Prince of Glory, Jesus, the Lord of Life, Jesus, the Humble King. You see, friends, there's no inclination in John's account, not even a hint of ecstatic emotionalism, just the straightforward account of an eyewitness who had nothing to gain but everything to lose by telling you what he saw, a testimony that matters for eternal life or eternal punishment. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose to life. So how will you respond? Remember, John wrote all of this so that you would believe. (coughs) Remember how he said it in his first letter, 1 John 1 verse 3. We proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what does fellowship with Jesus look like? What does life lived with Jesus look like? Well, John tells us right here in three brief stories. First, the account of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Joseph was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme council in charge of all Jewish affairs in Roman Palestine. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and also a member of the Sanhedrin. Now remember, Jesus has just been tortured and crucified for, well, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, for blasphemy, and in the eyes of Rome, for sedition. To come out now, publicly, after Jesus' death, to publicly associate with Jesus, this was seriously risky. Jesus has just been executed. The hoped-for Messiah, as best as human eyes could tell, had failed. They could have kept quiet, And no one would have known that they'd come to believe. They didn't understand what would happen. Their theology was incomplete. But they did know that Jesus was not just an ordinary man. They did know he had changed their lives. They did know that they loved him and that no matter what it might cost them, they belonged to Jesus. Dear friends, fellowship with Jesus means... That though in much of the world's eyes you're declaring your love for an irrelevant dead Jew who 
frankly, just did not have modern enlightened views on things. Saying publicly that you belong to Jesus will in all likelihood make you a social outsider. read in the in the news of the last week or two the story of two um, very well-known rugby players one Australian and one British who have made their faith public uh, I think whether it was via Twitter or Facebook or something like that Israel Folau made some uh, comment and um, believe Vunipola I think it is um, liked his comment I don't think made any comment himself just liked it and that may now cost him his job He's now in trouble with his club. He's in trouble with the English Rugby Union or whatever it's called. They may both lose their jobs for declaring their faith publicly. But Joseph and Nicodemus are forever remembered in Holy Scripture for their public show of love for Jesus in the darkest hour. And friends, your love for the Savior is known in heaven and is forever remembered by Jesus and by his Father. Mary, when Jesus called her name as he had before, and she recognized him, fell at his feet and held on to him. Overcome with emotion, she didn't want to lose her Savior again. But Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You don't need to cling to me, Mary. I'm not ascending to the Father just yet, but I will soon, and he is now your Father too. You will join me one day to be with me where I am. Do you remember those words from the end of chapter 17? Don't cling to me now, Mary. Don't insist on a relationship limited to where I am physically present at any one moment. I am going to the Father and will send the Holy Spirit so that I will be with you always and forever. And you will one day join me again, physically, in my Father's home. Dear friends, fellowship with Jesus means that though you will be an outsider in this world, you have the real indwelling spirit of Jesus living inside you right now. He is always with you. Always. And you will join him soon in the presence of the Father, his Father, and your Father. And finally, John. I said earlier, John is an eyewitness who had nothing to gain but everything to lose in sharing his testimony. And that's true in one sense, but in another sense, perhaps a more important sense, it's not true. John had much to gain. Yes, he knew his witness would bring, bring persecution. He knew it was very likely he'd be killed. In fact, church tradition tells us that all of the apostles except John were killed for their witness. John alone died an old man. Nevertheless, he paid a high price for his witness. But listen again to his own words. 1 John 1 verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John gave witness for your salvation so that you and I 
could have fellowship with Jesus and with God the Father. But that's not all he said. Listen to the next verse. We write this to make our joy complete. John gave witness for his joy. For all the suffering he had endured over his long life, seeing his closest friends martyred for their witness, being exiled himself, the emotional strain of caring for the church, and still he described it all as joy. And for 2,000 years, every time his testimony is told, I'll bet his joy has been increased. Every time one lost in darkness has come to faith, he has shared his master's rejoicing. Right now, in these moments together, if your joy in Christ has been increased, or if you have come to believe in Jesus for the very first time, John's joy has increased. Friends, fellowship with Jesus is joy. And as, by the Holy Spirit, we are transformed ever more into the likeness of Christ, as we love more and more what our Savior loves, so telling others is our joy, no matter what the cost. May fellowship with Jesus be your joy this Easter, the fellowship of owning him publicly, in the dark, whatever the cost, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of awaiting, and think of this, awaiting together with your Savior who awaits it too, the day when we will be with him in the presence of the Father to see his glory, the fellowship of joy-filled witness to our risen Lord. May this be your joy this Easter. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Dear Father in heaven, we give you thanks. More than words can say, you sent your Son to rescue us. To go to the cross, to rise from the dead for our salvation, for our fellowship with you and with him and with one another and with our brothers and sisters in the faith through the ages. Father, increase in our hearts the joy of being yours, of belonging to Jesus. May the joy of Easter be ours today and every day. In Christ's name, amen.